Well, once again, we'd like to uh, wish you all a very happy and joy-filled New Year. 2,114 years after the birth of Christ. Every time you write a check, every time you write that date down, you remember what it's based on. And that is that Jesus Christ came to this earth for a purpose. And that purpose was to live, to die, and to be raised again for you and for me. So welcome to the brand new year, 2014. Normally, in the new year, we look forward and we, look about make, we talk about making resolutions and, and uh, we want new things to happen in our lives. But today I want to do something a little bit different, um, to look back and see what God has done and then to look forward to claim His promises for the new and coming year. Every January, we do what we call a vision series, and we try to share with you the vision and the purpose and the reason that we exist as a church. Um, uh, Hope Covenant Church has been around since 1986. We've been in this building since 2002, and we're here for a purpose, for a reason. And we want to share that with you through these first five weeks of the New Year's. This vision series that I'll be preaching, uh, I've entitled My Ebenezer. Not because it's a cool name, and it is, isn't it? I mean, it really is, right? Or not because it's an obscure idea, and it is that. In fact, you can, after today's sermon, when you go to a party, you know, you can bring up an Ebenezer. You'll be the only one there that knows what it means. So that's kind of a party trick. You know, you'll, you'll love that. But we're talking about an Ebenezer because it is a stone of remembrance as to what God has done for us, His provision and His salvation. So I want to offer some historical context. Um, Ryan has built a little Ebenezer, uh, a series of stones to make a little altar. And these stones were put between, and they were much larger, of course, but they were put between these two cities. Samuel, the prophet, did that. And when he did that, the idea was whenever you passed by those stones, you said, oh, that's the stone of help. That's the Ebenezer. Um, I remember how God helped me uh, last year. I remember how God was sufficient, how he provided for me uh, a couple of years ago. I remember how God redeemed me. He saved me, how he forgave me. So all of these stones were there to remind them of who they were in God and to remind us who we are in Christ Jesus. So thousands of years ago, in the ancient Near East, um, this tribe that came, a mighty nation called the Hebrew nation, was moving all over Asia Minor, spreading out like tentacles. And as they did, they went through the cycle of what we call a cycle of faith. And the cycle you recognize because you do it too, and I do it too. The cycle is we love God, we embrace God, we listen to God's word, and then we fall and we fail and we sin, and we fall into this despair and this sadness, and then God reaches out to us, His arms are open to us again, and we repent. The word repent means that we turn around. We were going towards ourself, and now we're going towards God. And so we repent, and God embraces us and envelops us with His love and His grace and His mercy, and then we're joy-filled again, and then we start the cycle all over again. Well, that's what the Hebrews did. They went from this faith and joy to sadness over their sin to brokenness to 
repentance to redemption to joy and gladness again. And that's the cycle that we find throughout the Bible. And what Samuel wanted to remind, Samuel was a priest and a judge uh, about uh, 20, oh, about 2100, excuse me, about 2600, 600 years ago, 2600 years ago. And he wanted to constantly remind the people of God of how he helped them. Uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 7.12, Ryan read this passage to you. Let me read it again. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen, those are two cities. He named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far has the Lord helped us. The word Ebenezer means literally translated, a stone of help. And so the nation of Israel was restored. And every time they would, I'm sure when they would walk by between those two cities and they'd see those stones, they probably did what college kids do when they're going out for a football game. They touch the banner or touch the statue and they, by and they touched it and say, yes, okay, I remember now. That's my stone of remembrance. I remember what God did. I remember how he helped me. And that's what I want to do for us in this vision series. To help us remember how God has helped us. And to recognize the past, but then to move back, move from the past onto the future. And you see Ebenezer's all the time. How many of you on a regular, uh, uh, you know, regularly journal? Okay, how many of you journal? Okay, about 10 or 12 of you. Uh, my wife journals regularly. And she may not do every day, every year, but she does many days of the year. And sometimes she will go and look back over last year, a certain date, and she'll read how that she was sad or brokenhearted or something was going on in our family that made her really unhappy back then. And then she'll realize that, you know, God has answered that prayer. And that's why it's important to have a prayer journal. If you keep track of your prayers, you recognize how God was a stone of help, a stone of remembrance, how he did something to make your life better, to improve your life because you've been faithful to God. So we have these Ebenezers. Maybe it's a journal. Uh, if you go to a, a recovery group, AA or NA or GA or one of the recovery groups, every week they will pass out uh, uh, certain little tokens. And the token may represent a year of sobriety. Um, in my case, 15 years of sobriety from gambling. Or you'll have a, a, a something to remind you that, okay, God has been faithful to me for these 10 years, 6 months, 20 years. And it, it's an Ebenezer, a reminder. Um, last uh, service, after the first service, um, uh, a woman who comes to the first service, she said that um, today, she said, Pastor Joy, today is my one-year anniversary. I said, well, what, did you, what do you mean? She said, a year ago, I came to Hope for the first time, the first Sunday in January, and she said, I gave my heart to Jesus, and I'm one year old. I'm one year old in the Lord, I'm one year old in the church, and for her, that was an Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance. That Sunday, one year ago, in 2013, where she gave her heart to Jesus. Uh, another woman a couple weeks ago came to my office and asked me, uh, she said that she was struggling, just really believing that her salvation was real, that she really knew God personally. And so we talked about it and she had prayed to receive Christ right here in this church, but she just wanted some confirmation. So we prayed again. There's nothing wrong with praying again. We prayed again. And I said, okay, today I want you to remember this day, today, this office, this table, this is a stone. This is a stake in the ground. This is your remembrance. This is when you gave your heart to Jesus. These are Ebenezer's, things that God has done to show you his faithfulness, things that God has done to show you that he will always be with you, that his arms will always be wide open. Uh, these stones of remembrance, God says, I want you to know how I will be faithful to you. 
So that's what I'm going to do uh, during these weeks is to help us build our Ebenezer, build our stones of remembrance so that we can say, yes, God, you have been faithful. You have been a help to me. And for that, I am truly grateful. So when we talk about vision in our church, we always talk about the fact that we believe a lot of things. We're an Orthodox, Protestant, Evangelical, Christian church, if you know what all of those words mean. You know, we, uh, we affirm the Apostles' Creed. We affirm uh, all of those things that uh, Orthodox churches affirm. But there's two things that's unique about our church that we will always say are the two hills that we will die on. I mean, we'll argue with each other about baptism. We'll argue about eschatology, the coming of Christ. We'll argue about all kinds of different things. But there's two things that we all agree on together and we all lift up as the two hills that we'll die on. The one is this, that the Bible is God's Word. And it's God's Word today as it was 2,600 years ago. It's God's Word for you and it's transformational. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. That that stone, that Ebenezer we call God's word. And the other undying truth that we affirm is that every human being on this planet, whether you are, doesn't matter what religion you are, doesn't matter what sexual orientation you are, doesn't matter what political alliance you have, but every person on this planet can and is invited to have a real dynamic relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Everyone can be saved. Everyone can know Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am a way or a truth or a life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Everybody can experience the good news of Jesus Christ. So those are the two hills we die on. And throughout the series, we're going to be talking about our stones of remembrance, but those two facts will always kind of rise to the surface. If you want to know who we are as a church, if you affirm those two things, you would be more than happy at Hope Covenant Church as your church home. So just want to set that as a um, context for our message today. So the Bible is the Word of God. Ebenezer number one, the Bible is the Word of God. So as we begin, let me ask this question. Who do you listen to? Who are your voices that you hear that helps form and inform what you think, believe, feel, say, and do? What are those voices, those gurus, those words and people that you listen to that kind of form who you are? Here's what Jesus said should be the voice that we listen to. This is from what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but specifically Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. This is what Jesus said. Anyone who listens to my teaching, let me back up and say, anyone, does anyone understand what that word means? Okay, we all do. It means anyone, okay? Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Jesus said these words. Like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. Isn't that a great word? Great biblical word. It's built on bedrock. And anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Jesus says there's only one foundation that will sustain you and hold you up, right? 
And that foundation has to be a bedrock that is called Jesus Christ, the living stone, that one true cornerstone. Jesus Christ is that that bedstone. And how do we know Jesus Christ? We know him through his word. The Bible is the word of God. This is Jesus Christ in written form. That's what the Bible is. And so he says, you have to beware of who you build your life on, what kind of surface you build your life on. So um, uh, I have twin sisters, identical twin sisters that are a year older than I am. And one of them, Joyce, and her husband, David, lived in the San Fernando Valley in 1971. Um, They lived in this little two-bedroom house. They had a baby at the time, and my nephew. And they lived in this little two-bedroom house. And in those days, especially in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, in Southern California, not too bright, but that's what they did. Uh, I mean, after all, they, they voted, you know. Arnold Schwarzenegger, their governor, so, you know, you know that, that's what you have to live with. So they had they built these little houses, and then if they wanted to put an addition on it, they could get a building permit to put an addition on it by simply putting on cement pillars and a four-by-four. So you have four cement pillars, four four-by-fours, you build a floor on that, connect it to the house, and that's your addition, okay? So go figure. They don't do that anymore, but they used to do that a lot. And in 1971, my sister Joyce and her husband David and their little baby lived in a house like that, and this new addition was their bedroom. 6 a.m., I forget what month it was, but it was in 1971, a 6.5 earthquake hit San Fernando Valley. Freeways buckled. If you've been around or were in Southern California, it was similar to the 1994 uh, earthquake, but freeways buckled. Cars flew off the freeway. Everything, all these... People were killed. It was a terrible time. Joyce and Dave heard this rumble, this roar, this crash. They went out and they looked at their window. Their entire bedroom had fallen off onto the ground and it was sliding down this hill, okay? They didn't build on a firm foundation. They built on a foundation that seemed reasonable. They built on a foundation that seemed like it was okay. Everybody said it was okay, it would be okay, but it was not built on a firm foundation. Jesus is saying in this passage Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you build your foundation on. Be careful who you follow. You build a life on a foundation of stone that upholds and sustains, that will give you a life that is worthy and that works. Because not all voices, not all options are valid. Now, Christians, and I'll be very specific, me, as uh, not only a Christian, I've been a Christian since I was 16, but as a a pastor, um, Christians are not at all bashful about saying that it is the Bible that we build our lives on. That is the sure foundation that we build our lives on. It's God's Word. It's one of the two hills that we'll die on, and the Bible is what we believe is our calling card. We believe it's authoritative. We believe it's reliable. We believe it's inspired, which means God breathed. God breathed His life into this book. And we believe it is an infallible source or the infallible source of truth. The Bible, in other words, is a Christian's owner's manual for life. Now, here's the dilemma. And it is a dilemma. Uh, I'm, I'm, by training, my undergraduate work was in engineering. By training, I'm a scientist and I'm a left-brain thinker. Uh, You know, left-brain thinkers, we always think, you know, analytically and objectively. And so, it always bothered me to say something like, well, this Bible is the only source of truth. Because to me, I'm thinking, come on, 
You know, there's got to be other sources of truth, you know, in the world. And so that's why we need to look at these questions today. So from all over the world, you hear critics that say the same thing. Why would you stake your life on the Bible as opposed to other religious books, as opposed to other holy writings, as opposed to other ancient manuscripts? Why would you stake your life on the Bible? That's one question that we hear all the time. Another question is is this. Well, it's full of errors and it's full of contradictions, so why would you believe something that's filled with errors and contradictions, something that was written hundreds, thousands of years ago? Why would you possibly believe that? Because it's filled with all of these outlandish stories. And quite honestly, I'll be the first one to admit, well, that's pretty true. It is filled with some pretty outlandish stories. I mean, sometimes when you read the Bible, it's like reading the tabloid at Line and Safeway. I know you don't buy it, but you read it, you peek at it. I know you. Don't say you don't. Okay. So, so you know, and, and those tabloid headlines, right? Elvis is alive and well in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and he's a greeter at Walmart, right? So, a pregnant woman gives birth to a 68-pound baby boy. A donkey speaks to a man. How ridiculous is that, right? A 90-year-old woman gives birth to a son. That could never happen. And here's the most amazing. A large fish swallows a man and spits him out alive three days later. Come on. Who's going to believe that story? Now, if you attended Sunday school growing up, the last three of those were right out of the Bible. And so here's my question that we have to answer. Why would you believe the last three and not believe the first two? Or, or maybe you do believe the first two. Elvis would be 79 years right now, and he probably is at a Walmart somewhere if he is alive. But a bigger question is this. How do we know that the Bible is reliable? Can we really trust it? Is it really God's Word? Is it really the absolute truth? And is it really the only truth? We're going to put the Bible to the test today, okay? So I want you to put your thinking caps on. Now, how many of you... Left-brain thinkers are logical, analytical, objective. I'm one of those. Right-brain thinkers are intuitive and subjective and thoughtful. We need them both. Usually you'll find one of each in each household, right? How many of you are the analytical left-brain thinkers? Okay, okay, about half of you. How many of you are the more thoughtful right-brain thinkers? Okay, half and half. Okay, for those of you who are right-brained, please give us a chance to talk, okay? Because I know you guys feel and you, you know, and you are intuitive and all of it. I preached a sermon just for you several weeks ago. It was called Getting Lost in Wonder, Love, and Praise, okay? That was for you. Today is for the left brain thinkers. So right brain thinkers, this may be a challenge for you, but hang in there. Your husband or your wife probably is loving this, okay? Because I am go- I'm not going to say that the Bible is reliable because it says it is. That's circular thinking, Okay? The Bible says it is, therefore it is. That's too easy. Okay, that's too easy. We're not going to do that. But I want to put the Bible to the test today and ask some tough questions and see how the Bible comes out. Now, I want to say at the beginning too, do not take my word for this. Okay? You do your own homework. You go online, you go on the internet, you open history books, books on archaeology. You, You check this out. Okay? Don't just take my word for it. But I want you to feel type, you know, right brain thinkers. I want you to feel what it's like to be surrounded by truth and facts, left brain thinkers, okay? So that's what we're going to work on today. So here's the first question. Is the Bible historically accurate? Some say that modern science and archaeology have proven the Bible 
the Bible is full of flaws. Okay, you've heard that argument all your life. I heard that argument when I was a little boy, and I didn't understand it. How could people not believe the Bible, I thought. Actually, the opposite of that premise is true. The Bible has passed the test of history over and over and over again with flying colors. The Bible is filled with thousands of names, people, places, and events. This has given skeptics plenty of ammunition. But the interesting thing is that the historical data has pointed overwhelmingly to the accuracy of the Bible. And where there have been gaps or contradictions, archaeological findings have pointed to the Bible's accuracy time and time and time again. I can't say this strongly enough. If you don't believe me, you check out the facts. This book has been proven to be historically and archaeologically accurate time after time after time after time. So I challenge you to dig around. You'll find not hundreds, but thousands of archaeological finds in the Middle East that support the names, events, and places in the Bible. And these artifacts are being dug up all the time. Weekly, you'll read in scientific magazines about other artifacts that were dug up that prove another little piece of what the Bible said 2,500, 3,000, 3,500 years ago. It's unbelievable. So I challenge you to dig around. Now, the skeptics are kind of worried about this because this has been happening for a long time where what they were holding on to, the Bible is filled with errors, something proves that, well, it's not. It's actually accurate. So here's, uh, there was a report, and there's been several since then, but this is the one that kind of broke the ground on this about 15 years ago. Um, U.S. News Report, U.S. News and World Report, October 25th, 1999. There was an article, Is the Bible True? And the byline was, Extraordinary Insights from Archaeology and History. And the key word there for us today is extraordinary. Let me give you some examples. Now remember, this was not written by Christianity Today magazine or the Christian Science Monitor. This was written by the U.S. News and World Report, August 20, October 25th, 1999. There's been many articles since then that have confirmed what they read, but I just want to give you a few examples. The first one is this. The Bible in the Old Testament makes three dozen references to an enemy nation of Israel, uh, God's people, called the Hittites, H-I-T-T-I-T-E-S. The only problem is that historians for hundreds of years have never found a trace of a nation, a Hittite nation. And so they'd always say, well, see, the Bible's just filled with fairy tales. It just makes up names and places, and it's not really true. Their conclusion is always the same. The Bible is not credible. It can't be. It's an ancient manuscript that has false information, and it talks about places that never existed, etc., then in 1906, archaeologists dug up artifacts that confirmed the existence of the Hittite nation. The capital city was found along with 40 other Hittite cities. And the critics said, wow, that's amazing. But that's only one example, although there's been thousands, right? Here's another one. The Bible mentions that a man by the name of Belshazzar was king of Babylon back about 600 B.C., Historians have, contented, have contended over the years that a man named Nabonitus was the king at that time. The conclusion, once again, well, the Bible must be inaccurate. Guess what happened in 1956? Archaeologists unearthed three stones that solved the problem. These stones contained the following information. Nabonitus 
went out to war with his army, so he installed his son as king in his absence. His son name, son's name was Belshazzar. Okay, that was 1956. And again, there are hundreds of these. I could go on all day. In fact, if you love this stuff, come by my office someday and I'll show you all my information spread all over my desk. It's great. Here's another example, more recently. The Bible talks about David. This has always been the biggest bugaboo to scientists believing the Bible. Because this guy, David, is all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times, David, who was the giant slayer, he killed Goliath. And he was a shepherd boy who became king of the nation. And this is all over the Bible. Unfortunately, nothing had ever been unearthed to confirm that a man named David, let alone king of, of Israel, ever lived. Now that's a problem because the Bible says that Jesus came out of his lineage, the king of David. So uh, this has been kind of the ace in the hole for skeptics and historians for hundreds of years. Uh, a comparison would be that 2,000 years from now, not, from now, you could find no archaeological or historical evidence that a president of the United States was named Barack Obama. That's how ridiculous it would be that David's name would never... So maybe he just never existed as the uh, result of what they would think. So guess what happened in 1993? Archaeologists found a 9th century B.C. stone. <laughs> 9th century, 900 years before Christ. A 9th century B.C. stone tested with carbon dating methods with the name of an Israelite warrior king by the name of David. What's incredible is that it talked about him killing a giant Goliath as a child right on the stone, and his name, David. I mean, the critics scrambled. They did, like, that, that was amazing. To me, as a scientist and as a believer, I can't understand why people that don't have any faith in God whatsoever can't understand the enormous implications of this book being real and true. Anyway, that's just a side note. So, David. Now, here's another one. The Bible talks about uh, a man by the name of Joshua who was blowing a trumpet. He had all the Israelites blow trumpets, and they brought down the walls of what? Jericho. Okay. Um, you remember that story from Sunday school. Well, here's the problem. No evidence that a city ever by the name of Jericho or a person ever by the name of Joshua, lived. So even when they found all this stuff about David, they were still saying, yeah, but there's still so many things in the Bible that just, no, there's no evidence for it whatsoever. Well, guess what happened in 2001? Archaeologists found a city of Jer named Jericho underneath layers of dirt and rubble. And what shocked them was the fact that the walls fell down in a very unusual way. Because every city that's been found in a tell, an archaeological tell, or a, a site, every city that they've found, 100% of the time, is always exactly the same way. When the city crumbled, right, under siege by enemies, the city always fell inward. Always. Every single time. There is no historical record of any city doing anything except that. Under siege, the city falls in. Jericho did something that they'd never seen before. It fell the walls out. And that's exactly what the Bible says. And again, it stunned the whole historic and archaeological community. Now, friends, we could spend hours on this, and I would do that. I, I would love this stuff, but I'm trying to keep in mind you right brain thinkers, okay? So here's the conclusion skeptics and historians are making alike. Quote, in extraordinary ways, modern archaeology has affirmed the historical core of the Old and New Testaments, end quote. 
U.S. News and World Report, October 25th, 1999. Acclaimed archaeologist Nelson Gluck said this, and I quote, it may be categorically stated that no archaeological, listen please, no archaeological discovery has ever refuted a biblical reference. Can you say that about any other piece of literature ever been written in the history of mankind? Of course you cannot. He said, ever been refuted, refuted a biblical reference. Now, just as a comparison, and this isn't a criticism of another religion, but just as a comparison. The Book of Mormon mentions in great detail a vast civilization in the Americas from 600 B.C. to 400 A.D. It names tribes, rivers, people, cities. All of those things are named in great detail. But not one historian inside the Mormon church or outside the Mormon church has ever been able to produce one single artifact or piece of evidence to substantiate anything in the Book of Mormon. And yet 25 million Americans claim to be, follow the Mormon religion. You know what? I know you got to have a lot of faith for this stuff. I just don't get it. As one who loves science and one who loves math and all of that, man, this is the book I'm sticking with because there is so much evidence, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces of evidence and artifacts that says this book is historically accurate and true. The Bible alone has passed the test of history with flying colors. Maybe you're thinking, so what? The Bible's historically accurate. So is the Encyclopedia Britannica, right? Well, that leads to a second question, and it's this. Is the Bible inspired? Okay, our next stone that we're looking at, is the Bible inspired? In other words, is it God-breathed? Shakespeare, Chaucer, um, uh, you know, some of the writings of the Koran, all of these ancient literatures all seem to be very inspired. They're very great literature, but it's unique that the Bible calls itself a book that is literally blown or breathed life into by God the Father. Is it inspired? Is this book a bunch of religious stories penned by prejudiced human authors, or is this book inspired by God himself? We need to know. I need to know. There's a lot at stake. So I'm going to point in one direction. I could have gone a hundred ways in this way. I could have talked to you about things that the Bible talks about that are scientific. That um, I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, uh, verse 22, uh, it says that God looked or considered the earth. And he called it the, and the, the Hebrew word is kug, K-H-U-G. He called it the kug of the earth. And what that means, that mean, kug means sphere. So God looked and considered the sphere of the earth. Okay, no big deal, right? Except that was written, confirmed by Dead Sea Scrolls, that was written 700 years before Christ. 2100 years before Christopher Columbus. And the Bible declared that the Bible was a sphere. So that's one, there's hundreds of those, and I love that science stuff. But let's just talk about prophecies. Prophecies about Jesus, okay? Um, one person, one scientist said to have eight prophecies, and there's 191, by the way, to have eight prophecies come true, all of them come true, uh, over the life of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, to have eight of those come true, the chances of that happening are one in uh, a one plus 17 zeros. Okay, now you left-brain left people are going, awesome, you're right, 
brain people are going, huh, what? What does that mean? Yeah, one, one with 1,700 zeros. One chance out of that many is how, how much of a chance it would be that eight of those prophecies came true. Instead, 191 out of 191 came true. All verified, all shown. Okay, is the Bible inspired? Fulfilled prophecies. Because the Bible was written over a 1600 period, thousands of years ago, um, many predictions can be tested and verified. See, if you predict something, you know, 100, 100 years ago, and then it comes true, you say, wow, that's pretty good. You predicted that, and then 2,000 years later, it came true. That's amazing. So what's interesting is that these writers went out on a serious limb because they boldly predicted names, places, times, uh, experiences. Uh, these are no horoscope predictions. They're not some generic fortune cookie prediction. I mean, you know, like, okay, you're going to meet somebody today. Wow, you know, my fortune cookie, you know. But so, so, let, me, let me say it this way. I get excited about this stuff. So studies have shown that psychic predictions, including Nostradamus and Gene Dixon, it even sounds funny to put those two in the same sentence, Nostradamus and Gene Dixon, studies have shown that psychic uh, predictions uh, are correct 6% of the time. Across the board, all psychics, all time, 6% of the time. You know, can I say this out loud? I mean, a goat can do that. I mean, really? If, you, if I predicted 100 things that would happen in the next 100 years, I guarantee you at least six of them would come true. You know, all you have to do is kind of be aware of what's going on in the world, right? So, uh, that's, but what if I made 100 predictions and 100 predictions came true? Or how about 191 predictions and 191 predictions came true? Listen to just a few of the prophecies made in the Bible. 191 of these. In the Old Testament, made about Jesus Christ. So, um, all of them were given at least 700 years before the birth of Christ, and they predicted in precise, specific detail, things like his ancestry, the city he would be born in, how he would be born, the time in history he would be born, where he would live, how much the person would receive who betrayed him, 30 pieces of silver, that was predicted, and even how he would die. Psalm twenty-two sixteen says that his hands and feet would be pierced, and um, his hands and feet would be pierced. Verse 14 says his bones would be out of joint. All clear references to the crucifixion. That's Psalm 22:16. Here's the problem. The Psalms were written between five and 600 years before Christ. <laughs> um, no one used crucifixion before the first century AD. No one had heard of it. No one had invented it yet. And yet it says that in Psalm 22. That's just one example. I love this stuff. Okay, so scholars and statisticians uh, have said, okay, this just is impossible. It couldn't happen. One followed by 17 zeros. So here's an example. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, writing in 700 BC, named Cyrus the king who will command the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. The problem is when he wrote that, when Isaiah was on the earth, people thought he was crazy because the temple was fully built and fully functioning. How could somebody by the name of Cyrus rebuild it? That's ridiculous. A hundred years later, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar flattened the city of Jerusalem and the temple. In the year 539 BC, 161 years after Isaiah's prophecy, a king by the name of Cyrus issued a decree for the rebuilding of the temple. How could Isaiah have known this over 160 years before it happened? And again, these are all verified in terms of the age of the texts by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Number three. The Old Testament book of Ezekiel predicted in 592 that the city of Tyre, 
would be utterly destroyed and no city would ever be built on that again. So here a guy predicts in 592 B.C., that the city will be destroyed, a city that was thriving and a beautiful big city was thriving and that no city would ever be planted on that piece of property again. How ridiculous is that? I mean, we knock down buildings and knock down cities and we build other cities on top of it and over and over again. Well, let me say it this way. There's no doubt that the people of Ezekiel's day thought that he was nuts because Tyre was absolutely thriving. Tyre was flattened 13 years later. And if you go to the Holy Land today, you go to the place where Tyre stood and the flat rocks which once provided the foundation of the great city are still there and has never been rebuilt 2,600 years, years later. Amazing. Question. Are the hundreds of fulfilled prophecies all just a big cosmic coincidence? You would have to be so uninformed to believe that. There is no way. I mean, again, I want to tell you, check these out for yourself. Study up on these. Don't take my word for it. So what's our conclusion? How do we account for all of this? To me, there's only one logical conclusion. The Bible is what it says it is. It is the inspired word of God. Second Peter 1.21 says, no prophecy ever came from what a person wanted to say. But people led by the Holy Spirit spoke words from God. Friends, and even those of you who are skeptics here today, and I'm, I'm one of you, right? This is no ordinary book. The prophecies in the Bible supernaturally confirm its uniqueness and its veracity. No other book, especially ancient books, even come close. One last question, and this is for you right brain thinkers, okay? Is the Bible life-changing? This is where the message for a moment gets interactive. In a moment, I'm going to ask some of you to stand, and here's the requisite for you standing. I would like to see those people in our congregation that would say and declare without any doubt that this book, the Bible, God's Word, Old Testament and New Testament combined, that this book, the Word of God, has completely changed and transformed your life. It has set you on a path that is different than any other path you've been on before and has absolutely changed everything about you and transformed your life completely. If you can say that about this book, I'd like maybe 10, 20 of you to stand right now. Okay. Oh yeah, that's enough, that's enough. I know you're all wanting to stand. And Okay, some of you are cheating, that's all right. But I, okay, just stay, stay standing, stay standing. Okay, those of you who are up. I want everybody to look at these people. And I want you that are standing to look, turn around and look at everybody. If you want to know if this Bible will impact life, you ask one of these people. You, go, you don't take my word for it. You ask them. Say, how has this book changed? Thank you. You can, you can sit down now. The answer to the question, does the Bible, is the Bible life-changing, is really answered based on what you do with it. If your Bible at home is, you know, when you, every time you pick it up, you have to go, then it's probably not transforming anything, except maybe a clean spot on your table, okay? It's not doing it. This book is not magic. This isn't a magic trick. This is God's Word in written form. And when God's Word gets into you, inside of you, it has the ability to 
change and anoint and royal up and stir up and point and convict and bless and all of these things at once. And believe me, when you allow this book to become part of you, you will never, ever be the same. Just like these people that stood here a minute ago. I want each of us to take this book seriously in the new year because it'll change your life. Yesterday, we have, uh, on Saturday mornings, I have, uh, I teach what I call a huddle group. Brandon teaches one, I teach one. It's just six um, men in our church who have shown a desire to be discipled and want to go further in their faith. And so, uh, part of our uh, meeting yesterday was what we call the Lectio Divina. It's an ancient um, kind of uh, discipline in the church, goes back 1,600 years ago, an ancient discipline where you take the Word of God and you basically ingest it. In other words, you, you let it become part of you. Uh, Lectio Divina, you know, uh, inspired words. And uh, yesterday we did this, and we took a small passage, and we read it, and we went over it, and we let it become part of us and settle into us and see what God was saying to us. And it just made this word come alive. So in just a few verses, this, this living thing became part of us. This, this Bible became part of us. When, when that happens, your life is transformed. Your life changes. Now, I've seen this book's wisdom change marriages completely, turn marriages around that we're done for. I have seen this book's wisdom keep people from financial ruin. And I have seen how that this book's wisdom has literally redeemed, delivered, and saved thousands of people in my, in my lifetime. That when they have taken this seriously and they've received Christ as Lord and Savior, it has changed everything about them. I have seen this happen, all of this. Now, but let me flip that for a second. On the other hand, in my 32 years as a pastor, and I, I want you to hear this deep from my heart, in my 32 years as a pastor, I've seen a lot of human wreckage, a lot of wounded people, a lot of wrong decisions, including my own. And every time, it's because they violated the clear teachings of this book. Every time, no exceptions. Is the Bible life-changing? It all depends on what you do with it. It tells us why our lives and our world is messed up. And it tells us how we can get back to true north. And it always points to Jesus. And it always points to the fact that you can be redeemed. You can be transformed. You can be saved. You can be made new right now. And here's the good news. One day when Jesus Christ returns, he promises in the book of Jeremiah and the book of Revelation, he promises this. I will make all things new. Not just a little thing, but all things Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed, pneuma. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Isn't that an amazing promise when you allow this book and take it seriously? When you say, this is my Ebenezer, this I will stand on. This I will form my life on. The Bible is the Word of God. So are you building your life on the Bible? Is that your Ebenezer? I hope it is today. Is this where you get your truth? If, if not, I, 
you have a free choice. If not, where do you get your truth? Is it from experience? Yeah, that comes and goes, right? What's your guru? Guru Is it Oprah? I don't know. Dr. Phil? Dr. Oz? Book of Mormon? The Koran? Your buddy? That's the least source that you want to go to, right? But here's a warning. You get to choose who your God's going to be. You get to choose who that voice is going to be. But let me say this very clearly. Choose any God, any truth you want, but choose wisely, for you will have to live in that kingdom forever. As we close, I want to give you a couple of quick action steps. When you do this kind of a left-brain sermon, you need action steps. You need things to do. So here's three action steps. You can write this down in your sermon notes uh, that I would uh, like you to consider. First, the first thing is this. Get a Bible. Okay, on your way out today, if you do not have a Bible, we have some in the back there. You just go by and you pick one up. It's our free gift. It's for you. We have a man in our church that buys 100 of these at a time. And he says, just make sure you always have Bibles around, right? So pick it up. It's your free gift. You don't have to do anything else. Just grab it. So get a Bible. We'll provide it. If you want a whole Bible, this is just the New Testament. Write on your, on your Connect card, Bible, and we'll see to it that you get a, a whole Bible, okay? So the first thing is get a Bible. Number two, get into it. Read your Bible. Get serious. It's your owner's manual. Start in the Gospel of Mark. If you've never read the Bible before, start in the Gospel of Mark. Read a couple of verses every day. Let that verse get in you. We've got grow groups coming up on February 2nd. Each of our grow groups are based on studies in the Bible. Uh, we have a core class coming up on February 22nd. All of these are ways that we can help you get into the Bible. So get a Bible, get into it. And the third thing is this, get your questions answered. Don't take my word for it. Get your questions answered. Do some homework. We just scratched the surface. There's so much more I could say today. But we invite your questions. And uh, I know God's word will always provide the way. So at Ebenezer, this beginning of this new year, my prayer for all of us, including myself, is that my life will be on this bedrock of God's Word. That I will build my life, I'll build my family, I'll build my ministry, I'll build my hopes on this bedrock of God's Word. God's sure Word that you is reliable and is transformational. And I commend this Word to each and every one of you today. Would you bow your heads with me, please?